turn to John 19 or in your bulletins. The text is there to John 19. We're going to look at verses 28 through 30 and then 38 through 40. Uh, My first experience with my kids playing sports uh, really, to be honest with you, took me by surprise. Uh, Cal was obviously the first since he's the firstborn. Um, and the pattern went on for the rest of the, the three other kids, and, and Lord willing won't go on with Ty, but it did for the four we have now. Uh, when the rules of play for peewee sports were first explained to me, uh, it was very confusing. And I remember the first parent team coaches meeting when these rules of play for peewee sports were explained. No one could have missed the shock and the, and the other bewilderment on my face. And then I think when I voiced, what did you just say? All eyes turned to me like I was that parent. You know what I mean? Um, what happened with the next kid was a little different because the next time the rules of, of play were explained, I just bit my lip and my wife is there and she would squeeze my arm. And that was her silent signal, honey, do not open your mouth. Men, you got that one, right? Sometimes it's a leg. Sometimes it's an arm. Uh, now, currently, I'm hoping that by the time Ty gets here, the old school rules will be back in style. And the new school rules will hit the road forever. So what are the new school rules that are currently in play in peewee sports? Here, here's what they are. The elimination of competition. Right? Yeah, everybody. You know, what we do is we don't keep score because we don't rufus to feel like a loser if his team lose, right? Everyone's a winner. Nobody loses. Everyone wins today. Um, there are no winners. There are no losers. Everybody's a winner. Now, I do have some silent... Um, I had some gratification in this whole process, a little, just a, a small sign of triumph, because after every game, with every kid, they came running up to me telling me the score. <laughs> And if they won, they pumped their fists and they yelled the shout of triumph. And if they lost, they frowned and they would vow to get them the next time. Here's the point. Winning is written on the human heart. Losing is never natural to anyone. Welcome to a passage, however, that rewrites our notions of winning and losing. And in the process of rewriting our views of winning and losing, it rewires our hearts. Please stand for the reading of the scriptures. John 19, we're going to look at 28 through 30, and then jump down to 38 through 40. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put on a sponge, put it on a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jump down to 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Most folks think that Pilate was just kind of getting another stab at the religious leaders by doing this. Uh, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and 75 pounds in weight. 
Uh, that is the equivalent of what's used for kings. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We ask that by the power of your spirit, you would seal the wonders of your word to our hearts. So, Jesus, would you unleash heaven by the power of your spirit upon your people. For this is what we need. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we've seen, we are in a brief series, a three-part series. Next week, we'll be back into rediscovering God in the Old Testament or through the Old Testament. But right now, we're in a brief series through the Easter season on the the final moments of Jesus' life. We have seen uh, his first, well, no, we saw his second group. There are three groupings of his last words. One were addressed to to his mother and to uh, John on the cross. The second group of words, which we looked at in the beginning, was I thirst. Last week, we looked at it is finished. Uh, Today, though, we're going to look at Jesus' final act, his final work, his final accomplishment on the cross. The question is, what is it? What is his final work? What is his final accomplishment on the cross? And then, once we get down what it is, it's even... More important is, so what? What did he accomplish in such a way that it actually matters and means something to us? So what? What did his final act on the cross, how does it reach and rewire you and me? And reach and rewire our loved ones. And reach and rewire this church for the next 10 years coming on the heels of our 10th celebration. That's what we're going to do. Now, I want you to look at uh, what Jesus does after he says, it is finished, verse 30. Let's look at verse 30 together. He bowed his head. Now, we zeroed in on that last week and gave up his spirit. That's what we're zeroing in on this week. A more filled out translation would go like this. Remember, last week was he laid his head down to rest which is absolutely phenomenal. Filling out the rest of it would be and dismissed his spirit. Jesus dismissed his spirit. His spirit was not involuntarily taken from him. Now Jesus Uh, laid down his life. His life was not involuntarily overcome and taken from him. In fact, earlier, uh, Jesus is teaching and he's talking about the uniqueness of his death that's about to come in several chapters and he's talking to anyone within hearing distance and he says this, he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus is saying, I have authority over death. The author, 
the source, the father of life has given me charge, power, authority over death. Jesus has power over death. Death does not have power over Jesus. It's like this. Jesus, uh, death is this enemy, this hostile champion that submits to Jesus. Death is a uh, gory, great champion on the field of battle that helplessly waits for Jesus to dismiss his spirit and cannot claim him until he does. I've read many heroic heroic counts in my short 40-some-odd years. Soldiers, martyrs in the church, and just everyday people. Uh, Quite honestly, when I read these accounts, uh, they take my breath away. Um, When I read them, uh, I am deeply moved mostly in utter awe. Usually when it happens when I'm reading at night, this is the the regular routine. If I read it, I will drop the book on my chest. I will immediately look up with a a mixture of deep thought and deep feeling. And then my wife will soon notice that something's going on in the other side of the bed, and she'll say, Honey, are you okay? Heroic accounts impact us. Sacrificial love... A sacrificing of oneself for another puts a lump in our throats. When we see the courage and the fearlessness of these heroes, it puts iron in our wills. When we see this sense of they forget themselves and they they live for something greater, it seems to pack passion in the heart. But every single hero we have cannot command death. Cannot control death. In the end, every single hero loses to death. John wants you to know in this passage that in the most brutal piece of real estate in the history of the cosmos that ever existed on earth, in heaven, and under the earth, that in this most brutal piece of real estate where the ground of the slain of the Son of God is taking place, what John wants you to know, that Jesus is complete control here. Jesus is in complete command here. Jesus dismisses his spirit. Jesus volunteers to lay down his life. Jesus wins even here. Now, what's Jesus' final work? What's his final act? What's his final accomplishment on the cross? What's he doing here? You know what the answer is? He's winning here. How? By losing. 
He is winning by losing. So Jesus defeats sin and death by losing. Jesus crushes condemnation, cosmic condemnation. Cosmic condemnation is the only real monster out there in the universe right now. The only real fear there is in the world. It's out there and it terrorizes all of us in here. Cosmic condemnation of our very being is the only monster and the only fear and Jesus crushes it by losing Jesus redeems he restores he reconciles he wins human hearts and lives and all of creation by dying by submitting by becoming weak by relinquishing power by losing Jesus wins by losing now what should this do to you what should this do to me I mean, what kind of impact should this have on us? I mean, what we're looking at is we're looking at a shocking pattern of the gospel. Winning by losing. What is that? That is, that is counter everything. It's counter everything to our wire. And it's counter, yes, winning is written on the human heart. But winning by losing? Uh-uh. Completely counter to us. So how, how is this supposed to affect us? How is this supposed to shape you? How is it supposed to flesh itself out in our lives? We get two clues of how it's supposed to from two people after the account of Jesus' death. I want you to look at verses 38 through 40. Let's get it again. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen, cloths, spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Honorable burials in the Middle East had to happen within 24 hours. I mean, what's all the hoopla today over Osama bin Laden being buried in 24 hours? Because it's still in effect today. That is the, the notion of an honorable burial. It's got to happen in 24 hours. Uh, Roman law normally would allow the next of kin to take the body of the crucified. Except in cases, cases of sedition, subversion, charges of trying to overthrow, uh, take over Roman rule. Which is exactly what the religious leaders had to charge Jesus of for Rome to act. Rome doesn't care that some religious prophet in some foreign land is claiming some special deified powers. They're just thinking, add them to ours. We've got plenty. If we're missing something, add them. But overthrowing or sedition, terrorism within Rome, no, that's not going to happen. And so that was the charge. So Jesus would have been dumped into a common pit outside the city 
And he would have been dumped into a common pit with the two that were crucified with him unceremoniously into the pit. Left to the vultures, left to the wild animals to further violate them. Because to Roman law and to Jewish law, this kind of reality was the mark of whether you've got a deity up there or in Jewish case, the deity up there that he has cursed you, abandoned you, shamed you. You're a failure. You're a loser. You're outcast from God. All right. Now, while Jesus is being brought to the pit to highly successful, high-ranking, highly influential men go and ask for the body. Now, these two men are not just the high of the high. They are, they are in one of the most elite groups in all of Israel, politically and religiously, called the Sanhedrin, which the Sanhedrin claims its roots go all the way back to the 70 elders of Moses. And so their pedigree and their privileges and their perks and their power and their influence and their all their recognition and fame is off the charts in Israel. And these two men are from that elite circle. And they ask for Jesus' body. They openly identify themselves with Jesus. They openly identify themselves as friends of Jesus. They openly identified with the death of Jesus by asking for his body. So whatever sedition charges, subversion charges, terrorism charges, whatever humiliation and cursing and abandonment and rejection and failure that stuck to Jesus sticks to them now. The death of Jesus to Joseph and Nicodemus was their death of self-importance. Here's what we got. For Joseph of Arimathea and for Nicodemus, the death of Jesus was the death of being important. The death of their personal ambitions, the death of their personal fame, the death of their personal recognition, the death of their personal power and influence over people, the death of their position and their status, the death of their privileges and perks and probably their monetary lifestyle, the death of all of that was their death. The death of Jesus meant the death of their importance. The great C.S. Lewis in his classic Mere Christianity, he says this, give, yourself, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death and death of your ambition and your favorite wishes and you'll find eternal life. But look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find him. And with him, everything else. End quote. Jesus wins by losing means our notions of winning and losing get rewritten and you get rewired. 
We don't win by being important. By amassing power and influence and ambition and prestige and recognition and fame and respect and approval and acclaim and applause and beauty and strength and might. We win by losing it. Giving it away. Relinquishing it. Dying to it. Winning by winning the argument is losing in God's eyes. Losing the need to win the argument and thus connect relationally with the person is winning. Winning by comparison to someone else is losing in God's eyes. Losing the need to be better than someone, losing the need to measure ourselves with someone, losing the need to prove ourselves with someone, and thus consider them better than ourselves, winning. Winning by raw force and power, and this means husbands hiding behind submission in your marriage, parents hiding behind, and anyone in authority, anyone that has a leadership position, employers, employees, church leaders, uh, folks at Baylor, anywhere, in your job, your occupation, whatever it is, any position of leadership and authority, anytime we, parents, hide behind our position of authority, is losing. And then all of us, we hide behind our hidden agendas with other people, with each other, losing in God's eyes. But losing the need to control and to have our way and thus serve and love one another, winning. Touchdown. Championship. So the death of Jesus calls us to lose to win. Look how shocking the pattern of the gospel is. It is utterly scandalous. It's foolish. It just doesn't seem right. To truly win in God's eyes, which means to truly win intimacy with God, to truly win spiritual treasures, to truly win an intact, restored, healed soul, to truly win over fear, and truly win over arrogance in our lives, and truly win over corruption in our hearts, to truly win over these things, we have to lose to being self-important. We've got to die to being better than others. We have to lose our need to be in control. We have to relinquish our need to think of ourselves as a good person and to have others think well of us. We must lose our need to control God and control people. We must lose to win. So how are we doing? 
That's a tough one, isn't it? How do we do this? How does this happen? And this is how we're going to end. Um, we will never lose to win. We'll never leave. We'll never be able to get rid of this need to be important. It will never happen unless this happens. So what we're about to look at, if this doesn't happen, it doesn't matter, as Shainer walked down and said, how nice you are. You're still trying to win by being important. The only way we lose to win is if what we look at next happens to us. It's the only way. There's no other way. There's no management classes. There's no uh, better tips for Christian living classes. There's no Christian manual you can do. There's no character study in the Bible you can study that's going to make this happen. There's no imitation of, of ethics and commands anywhere that's going to do this. The only way it's going to happen is if this happens. Should we just close in prayer? Okay. Unless you personally see for yourself that Jesus dismissed his spirit for you, you'll never lose to win. Unless you see with the eyes of your heart that when he was at this moment on the cross, right after he lays his head down to rest, you are in his mind and his heart. And he dismissed his spirit. You see that. You'll lose to win. What you'll see when Jesus dismissed his spirit, you'll see that you win everything. He dismissed his spirit so you'll win everything. He dismissed his spirit so that you'll win the removal of sin. He dismissed his spirit so you'll win the removal of that cosmic monster and that cosmic fear that runs everyone ragged in the cosmos right now, inside and out. Eternal justice, cosmic condemnation. He removes it. And he also... When he wins by losing, what he does is he wins for you. He is able to remove the unremovable stain of shame. When he dismissed his spirit, you win that unremovable stain of shame wiped from you. And not only this, what he ends up doing is that when Jesus dismissed his spirit for you, he removes your need to be important. You don't have to crave and run around looking for people and places and power and performance to make you important. He removes that need because he makes you important with God. You have intimacy with God. You have worth and value and meaning and love with God. And when you get that, the craving and the need to be important goes away. Because you're important with God. 
and to God. So John tells us in verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Did you catch that? And then it's repeated with Nicodemus. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. Why did he come by night? Because he also feared the Jews. Do you see what John wants you to see in both these men? Both these men had a driving, craving need to be important. Or we could say it negatively, state it negatively. Both these men were driven by the fear of being dismissed by people. Being small to people. And then after the unique death of Jesus, these men that needed to be important, let it go. When they identified with Jesus' body, being important died with Jesus. When they both saw that Jesus dismissed his spirit for them, they saw they won everything. They had nothing to lose. So boldly, one who fears what important people think went to the most important person in the land and said, I want his body now. The one who was in the elite circles fearing at night, the text says, secretly would go to Jesus for fear of the Jews in broad daylight, ask for Jesus' body in front of all the Sanhedrin. And then Nicodemus at night, boldly in broad daylight, goes with Joseph of Arimathea to the pit, carries Jesus' body, and gives it a proper burial. What happened? They saw on the cross that Jesus dismissed his spirit for them. They won importance with God. So here's the the final deal is this. Jesus lost. Jesus dismissed his spirit. Jesus willingly laid down his life, and he did so for people who craved to be important, self-important. So you could win everything, importance with God. So if you see this, you'll trust Jesus as your Savior, the one who wins importance with God for you. And Christians, what we'll do as we're in this journey of learning to live the Christian life, learning to, what does it mean to grow in holiness? What does it mean to grow in this relationship with God? Well, this is what it means. If you see Jesus dismissing his spirit for you so that you win everything, you know what happens? Today and tomorrow, you willingly, joyfully will lose your need to be important in your marriage with your kids, in the workplace, in the church, with your neighbor. We will become people who lose to win. Amen.